we addressed in the first half of the chapter that Jesus healed a paralytic man that had been paralyzed for 38 years. Great story. I hope that you gain some understanding as to why the healing took place uh, for multiple reasons. Of course, he was paralyzed, and Jesus has grace on people and brought healing to the man, but God had a bigger plan, right? Because Jesus then told the man to break the rules of the Sabbath that man had created, not the rules that, that God created, purposefully break the rules so that it would stir up the anger of the Pharisees. And though it, it, it could have put the man in danger, it was really Jesus that stepped up to the plate and he took the brunt of their, their anger so that he could address a bigger issue with them, which we're going to study today. But it also set in motion the greatest plan of all, which was the Pharisees from that moment forward seeking for a way to kill Jesus, which had to take place so that we could have salvation in relationship with God ourselves. There's always a bigger plan in God's eyes that we don't always see, and that's why we trust him. Few people enjoy change, right? Anytime we do stuff at the church, uh, we make changes. I always know as, as simple as those changes might be, there's going to be a few people that get upset. Why? Because of change. They just don't like change. When it comes to enjoying, not enjoying change, we don't like the disruptions to our routine in life. Because we get used to, whether you admit it or not, you have a routine in life. Everybody has a routine in life. Some days I get up in the morning and do certain things, and every day is different. Nevertheless, I have a routine in life. And to have that routine disrupted can be challenging sometimes because routine provides stability for ordinary people. But God isn't ordinary. The good news isn't ordinary. And I want to express this. It isn't reserved for the righteous. Now, in our scriptures from last week, he just healed the man's lifelong illness and what we need to understand is that in healing his illness, he was upsetting the routine of the religious leaders. See, what we don't understand, because we're not from their culture, is that the way things had been established in the days of Jesus, it had been going on for probably hundreds of years. Over time, from the giving of the Old Testament, which was the Israelites with Moses, to the days of Jesus, that rabbis had added to Jesus' laws and created their own. As I kind of expressed last week, there was literally 39 laws that were added to don't work on the Sabbath. Because they wanted to make sure, Pharisees, in their good-heartedness, the religious leaders, that there was no ambiguity in what it meant to work on the Sabbath so that nobody was accidentally sinning. So the intent was good, but in that, they created 39 laws that mankind then had to follow after, and those laws became just as important as the laws of God. And so I couldn't believe if you read those laws, just to throw out a few things to do, a lot of them actually had to do when they were encamped, uh, to go to war and things that they should do and shouldn't do. And so they took those laws and figured it's the Jerusalem, for example, is the encampment of the Lord. 
And so they applied those same things that God told them to do back then into the city of Jerusalem. Not only could they not walk far from home and not do all sorts of things, but they couldn't even, if in Jerusalem, and you can look up these laws because there's 39, which are all subheadings and have multiple little laws underneath each 39 laws. They weren't even supposed to go to the bathroom because it might be considered work. How ridiculous it was. And we can look at it 2,000 years back and think, wow, that was really crazy, really dumb, right? But in their culture, that was their routine. That was what everybody lived by. That was the expectation. You get caught breaking one of those laws, and I'm not just talking working the working on the Sabbath, but the idea of even the appearance of working on the Sabbath, which was why they had some of their laws, you could be put to death. Like, this isn't a joke. It's not something that they only partially lived by. It didn't even really matter if you're Jew, but you didn't really, you know, get that connected to people. If you were caught as a Jew breaking the Sabbath, it could be a death sentence in your life. This was the absolute. I mean, this is just one of the Ten Commandments that had multiple man-made rules around it, right? And so this was part of their routine. It's life. It's what they knew, and they probably didn't really know anything different. And we don't realize that because there's things we do that we really don't know any different. We've just done it. It's part of our culture. It's part of who we are. And that's exactly how they were. And so for Jesus to come in as a religious leader and tell somebody to purposefully break the law, it was messing up their routine, their stability in life. And so there's a big confrontation. And how does Jesus respond to the confrontation? Let's look at verses 16 through 18. This is a little bit of a rewind. For this reason, for what reason? If you go back, he healed the man on the Sabbath, and then he told him to pick up his bed and walk. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus. This was the beginning of the persecution of Jesus where they sought to kill him, which was the big plan that had to be initiated in order for salvation to take place. Because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. So what we don't realize in that statement, like we think that God, you know, rested. But the way the Jews see, like on the seventh day of rest, that God didn't really rest. He maybe rested from his creation aspect, but he didn't rest from still holding things in place from still allowing mankind to have breath to breathe. And so God, Jesus is relating to the aspect that, that just as his father is working, that he is working too. And so um, it says in verse 18, therefore, by that statement, Jews sought all the more to kill him because he said this. Why? Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but now also he said that God was his father. And by saying that God was his father doesn't just mean that Jesus was his son, which was a lesser person, but the way the Jews read this, that we need to understand ourselves, that so many people struggle with in the world today in their understanding of who Jesus is, is that it said he was making himself equal with God. Everybody say equal. That was the biggest issue, the greatest complication, what made them the maddest 
was this statement alone. Because the Jewish religious leaders, they were able to grasp something that not many people in today's world even grasp, that Jesus is equal with God. They get upset and irritated over the arrogance of Jesus. And as the old saying goes, they had to have thought that he was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Y'all know that phrase, right? But it's true. They would have been hearing this, and they would have been thinking, what did he just say? And not only were they dumbfounded at the words that Jesus just spoke, but they were irate at the words that Jesus just spoke because their order was now getting messed up. We all have order that sometimes gets messed up. That's why it's important for us to know who Jesus is. Now, there are some people who thrive in an environment of order, right? I don't know about you. Like, I... I've worked in jobs that have order, and it definitely makes the job easier. If my wife gives me a to-do list, which she doesn't typically do, I would much rather have a to-do list so that I can look at what needs to be done and check that list off because there's some sort of order that I can follow. I know what to do next and how long each one should take or however long it's going to take me to do each one, right? I don't know if you're like that. I prefer that, but that's nothing to do with the way I live my life. Like, Uh, I don't have those people in my life, but I look for those people in my life because I need that in my life, right? Because the truth is that most people do, they thrive in an environment of order. And in many ways, you have to understand that this is what the religious leaders were thinking of their religion at that time, is that, that potentially the people were thriving, that there was good things that were going on because they had some sort of order in their faith, in who they were as a culture, they, they carefully stuck to the traditions. Some of those traditions given by God, and some of those traditions were created by themselves. And so they hoped to have some sort of order and stability. And what you may not realize in that culture was very divided. There was a fragile political environment and religious environment because of the Romans and how chaotic they were and their lives and how they replaced leaders and who they wanted and what could happen and the corruption that was amongst them. And so this was their sense of order. It's what gave them peace and stability in life was the way that they they followed their religion. And Jesus came and he was messing with it. And as much as we'd like to think that we would be on the side of Jesus if we're honest there's a good chance that we would join the religious right. And just so some people don't feel a little stabbed, I'll extend that word to religious righteous. More specifically, our own self-righteousness. Listen, we all look at order. I talked about it last Sunday. We, we don't think that we have that kind of stuff and all those man-made rules that they do back then, that they did back then, but we have our own man-made rules. We have our own idea of what order is in a church service when we gather together. 
of the way things should happen in order for God to move or people to receive. We all have these, these general ideas of what it means to know God and to read the Bible. And if you ever ask different people what it means for them to read the Bible, you might get 10 different answers of simply reading the Bible or the way they think that you should read the Bible, to praying. There might be several answers of how you should pray or when you should pray, to, to, to just every discipline of the faith, to the aspect of attending church, and whether, you know, you should go to big churches with small groups or small groups that have no churches. Like, there's multiple things that divide the church today. We all have our ideas and rules of how we're going to meet what we believe is God's commands, Right? So don't think that we wouldn't fall on the side of the Pharisees. We may very well be one of the Pharisees. Why do we do that? Because that's the way we expect order to happen. And as good Christians, what do we do? We deeply desire, not just in our church services, but in our own country, for us, for example, a society of morals and righteousness. That's what we desire, and rightly so. But the problem emerges when we, like Jesus' opponents, hope to cultivate morality through our own obedience. You think you're going to change the world because you're a good person, and that's the way that it should happen, and that's not the way people are changed at all. They're changed through a revelation of Jesus Christ, and it's a heart transformation, a life transformation. But listen, the gospel of Jesus isn't just an assault on our immorality. We have to know this, the majority of us here this morning that have went to church for years and know God's word, that it's also an assault on our own righteousness. More specifically, our self-righteousness, right? The good news, and it is good news, tells us that there is no sin so great that the cross cannot cover it. But it also proclaims that there is no sin so small that our own righteousness will cover it. So in a way, when you think about the story here, the paralyzed man had an advantage because he knew he was sick. But the religious people of the world spend so much time hiding in their own self-righteousness, they fail to recognize that they're afflicted with a devastating disease themselves. It's a spiritual sickness. So to make things even clearer, Jesus responds to the Pharisees like, you're calling yourself equal with God. Instead of saying, we'll talk about that another day when things settle down, you know, like, like let's come back to this or come join me at the temple and I'll teach on it one day or, or maybe you should go see a different rabbi and talk to him or you know, one of the disciples. Instead of passing the buck in the middle of the moment of the heated exchange, he decides that this is the time, you know what, if you're asking the question, I'm going to give you the answer. And so he actually dives into this deep ex explanation designed to defend his right to heal on the Sabbath. 
And while doing so, in the rest of this chapter, he gives them and us today greater insight than in any other book of the Bible of what it means who Jesus is and what his relationship is with the Father. And so we're going to go over four points to his lesson, his teaching. Let me school the rabbis this morning. That's what he was saying. And I want you to understand that as he's sharing this information, that he speaks to a people that are hearing something more than likely for the first time ever. They've never probably heard somebody that would say, I'm equal with the God that you worship. They are in shock about what's being said. It's unfathomable for them to think that this guy from Nazareth is God. That's like us. I, I said this earlier in the book. If somebody from Smelterville were to walk in here and say, I'm equal with God, don't think you wouldn't be like the Pharisees. Right? You'd be like, yeah, whatever. No, I'm equal with God. And the more he said, the more stirred up you'd probably get about it. We'd probably like, if you're going to try and say this in front of all the people that are here this morning, we got a side door exit and you're lucky if you don't hit it head first on the way out, right? Don't think we wouldn't be like the Pharisees. We're quick to judge them, but you know what? They're hearing this for the first time ever. It's easy for us to look back on Scripture and think, man, those guys really missed it. But the truth is, we'd probably be just as crazy, just as insane about the situation. What is this guy from Nazareth saying right now? This is insane. And instead of backing down, Jesus lays it on them. And he claims, not only am I claiming that I'm equal, but let me define for you what equality is. And so point number one, equality. God the Son. John chapter 5, 19 through 23. Jesus answers and he says to them, Most assuredly, there's no question in his mind. I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, you probably should go read through this if you haven't already and study those verses a little bit more because there's no way I could cover this in today's sermon. But he, like, shows what the Father does, and then he shows what he, what he does, and he, he's showing equality. Probably this, these, well, this verse right here in verse 19 is one of the most frequently used verses for false religions to teach incorrectly about Jesus. Why? Because if you take verse 19 out of context, then you might think that Jesus is more limited than his father, right? Like, God the Father can do whatever he wants, but Jesus can only do what he sees his father do. Like, and Jesus may not be watching all the time, so he doesn't always see what the Father's doing, but then when he does peek in on the Father, he does what the Father does. Like, like you could argue and debate about, you know, the aspects of what Jesus sees and what he doesn't see and what the Father's doing and what he isn't doing and when Jesus sees it and what he, he does. And you could view that 
and it's taught as Jesus, because of that statement, is lesser than the Father. That's what some people teach. But then you have to go back to the beginning of why the religious crowd was mad to begin with. Because they understood what some false teaching doesn't. Jesus, in everything that he was saying, was claiming not to be lesser than or almost as great as God, but equal as God in the flesh. Equal as God in the flesh. Philippians 2, 5 through 7, the Apostle Paul would write this. He says, let this mind be in you. Everybody say me. Which was also in Christ Jesus. So we have the mind of Christ inside of us who we have this understanding. Being in the form of God, this is Jesus. Being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That should confirm what Jesus has already spoken when the Apostle Paul says, listen, he didn't even view it as robbery, as taking anything away from God by claiming himself to be equal with God. That's a huge statement. But made himself, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Form of God, equal to the Father, form of a bondservant, which meant he was emptying himself of his, his rights, his privileges, his majesty. And so while Jesus is walking on the earth fulfilling his ministry, he's human in the sense that humans must be obedient and submissive to the Father. And Jesus does this. Why? Because this is what was necessary for our salvation. Now, we have to understand that even in this, Jesus isn't saying that the Father has things that, that Jesus doesn't. Because you might think, well, since Jesus uh, forwent, he, he made himself of no reputation, that all of a sudden he no longer had things that the Father had, that he was lesser than. That's not true. It says in these verses, essentially, if you read what the Father did, Jesus did. Why? Because even though he may have have made himself of no reputation, the Father then shared everything with the Son. Does that make sense? So like our kids, if I want my son to be equal with me, then even though he may have, have nothing, I share everything with him, so he does still have everything. And that's what's being described in this. Like the Father has the ability to, to, to give life, but guess what? Jesus as a human upon earth still has the ability to give life. How is that if he forwent everything? Why? Because the Father still shares who he is with Jesus because they're equal. They're one and the same. Now we have to understand also in verses 21 through 23, it, it says these things. When it comes to raising the dead and giving life, when it comes to judgment, when it comes to receiving honor, which is essentially praise from other people, the giving of life, and the judgment of all is accomplished by the Father, it says, working in and through the working of the Son. So all of this is accomplished because the Father chooses to work in and through the works of Jesus Christ. And he wants to put Jesus forward for us to see him and to honor him. If you want to know and love and honor God, then the verse says you need to know and love and honor the Son. As Jesus will later explain, I believe it's in chapter 14 in the book of John, he will say, 
to one of the disciples when they say, show us, show us God, show us the Father. Jesus' response to them is, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And specifically, how the Father works through the Son. So Jesus is completely claiming equality with the Father. Now he follows this section summarizing his equality with a promise. I want you to hear this. He follows this section where he's summarizing his equality with God with a promise. So if you understand that section of equality better than the Pharisees did, then you receive the promise that he's about to give to them. It says in verse 24, most assuredly, is there any question in Jesus' mind? I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. If you can grasp that, he's only stirring up the religious crowd even more. Like they have a, a way in order of things, an order of what they believe. And all of a sudden, Jesus is injecting himself in the middle of their order, and he's saying, no, whatever you believed before, you might have believed one or the other of those, more than likely the other, about believing in, in God the Father. But it wasn't just that. Jesus is saying, you have to believe both of these. First, you have to hear my words. And hearing just doesn't mean that I all of a sudden one day hear somebody talk about Jesus. Hearing in this context is an understanding of Jesus' words. Hear my words. Understand them. Get them inside of you. And then number two, it's believing in the Father. But it's not just believing in the Father. Believing in the Father who sent the Son. It takes both. You can't have one without the. But if you get him, you get the promise. If you get those two things, you get the promise. Number two, Jesus addresses in the next set of verses, not just his equality, but his authority. Because what was one of the questions that the Pharisees would ask? By whose authority do you do this? Whose authority is he doing these things? They attributed the authority of the devil to Jesus, right? By whose authority? So Jesus, right away, in the very beginning of all of this, addresses by whose authority he moves. In John chapter 5, as the Son of God, 25 through 30, he says, most assuredly, does it sound like Jesus has a question on what he believes? I say to you, the hour is coming and now is. That means that there's a double reference to what he's about to say. This is going to happen now, and this will also happen in the future. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Verse 27, and has given him authority. Everybody say authority. So now he has this shared authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Verse 28, do not marvel at this because they're all dumbfounded right now. For the hour is coming in which all, everybody say all, all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good 
to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. That's a mouthful right there that, again, could, you could have another sermon or two off of just these verses. But Jesus, listen to what he's saying in the big picture about his authority. He, he said that already this, that all those who hear his word, right, his words, he says, my words, they will have eternal life. And now he states that by his authority, even the dead those who are in the grave will have the opportunity to hear his words and those who hear them, what's he saying? Those who hear them will have, also have life. That means that there will be dead who have the opportunity to hear his word, but they won't hear them. Because the idea of hearing isn't just hearing words, it's understanding what it is that's being spoken. And so the dead somehow will have the opportunity to hear the voice of Jesus, and those who really hear what Jesus is saying will also have life. That's how much authority he has, not just upon this earth. Now he's really blowing the Pharisees away because he's first claiming that essentially he's God, and if you will hear my word, that you guys will be saved. But he also has such authority that even the dead are going to hear my word, and if they hear it and understand, the dead will also have life. But he doesn't even stop there. He then goes on to really blow them away and say, listen, not just all of those people, but everybody. He goes on and he says, all. Jesus extends his authority to the resurrection of all, both those who have done good and those who have done evil. Every single one of them, by the authority of the words of Jesus, will be given life. Now listen, you might be thinking, what are you saying? meaning that all will have been resurrected. All will have life. They'll be alive. Come judgment day, everybody that once died will still be alive. They will have life. It's all just a matter of if, by Jesus' authority to judge, they will have life spent eternally with Jesus, or they will have life spent eternally in condemnation. So the day is coming soon, whether we like it or not, when we will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ, dead or alive. And we will have to face him. And we will either have his good news, which is his works and his righteousness to cover us, or we'll be left naked with our own works and our own filthy righteousness to condemn us. What Jesus is saying that we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because of what we, what we choose now makes a difference in where we go in the future. Who is Jesus? He is the king of his kingdom. He has the authority to decide who he is going to build his kingdom with, and it's pretty simple. He chooses to be with those who choose to be with him. Notice that Jesus keeps mentioning his word and his voice, his word and his voice, if you read through those verses. He keeps talking about we've got to believe what he says. 
So Jesus makes a slight transition in what he's explaining to the Pharisees right here because he's going to address the fact that there are those there in that crowd and probably some who are in this crowd today that won't simply believe what he is saying in these verses just because he's the one saying it. The problem is that people want to dispute the testimony of Jesus. People are seeking him. They hear this discussion of who he really is for the first time, and it's going right over their heads. They don't believe a word of it. And it's not just that people don't believe it or understand it, but they reject it. Jesus, they'll think, isn't really authorized to be the Son of God. He's not the real authority. He isn't equal with the Father. And so Jesus has to bring forward what he will say essentially is the testimony of the witnesses. He's even giving them evidence of this is who I am, evidence that the equality and authority that he is claiming to possess is real and true. And so he gives them what I'm going to cover is four witnesses really quick. Acknowledges that, so in the very first few verses, John chapter 5, verse 31 through 40, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Why is he saying it's not true? It's not that he doesn't know that it's true. It's that people won't believe based solely on his, himself and his words that it'll be a valid testimony. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Verse 33, here's number one. You have sent, you have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet, I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing, you Pharisees, religious leaders, were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. What's the next witness? For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Now, some people may combine this, this final witness with the Father and Scriptures. I'm separating them and making the Father one and Scriptures one. So number one, who was the first witness of Jesus? John the Baptist. Why does he throw out John the Baptist? Because he wants to remind them that they all knew and heard of John the Baptist for themselves. Some of them even went to John the Baptist. He's described as a burning and shining lamp. John had been delivering this message because he has this kindled heart that was on fire for God, and it's contagious to other people. And so mass people were coming to him and listening to his words. And, and then he also had the light of God, and he was guiding people to repentance. But John himself would also say that he wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't Elijah the prophet. He was simply doing what? Preparing the way. For who? For the Messiah. And so what was his message? 
He was preaching the message of the coming Messiah. And it says that the Pharisees, even for a time, found joy in his message of the coming Messiah. And yet when the Messiah comes, the second testimony, he says, are his works. Now, mind you, the present controversy that he's currently dealing with started with the healing of the paralyzed man. And most of the acts of Jesus, the works of Jesus, were simple acts of compassion, simple acts that showed uh, his heart, the heart of God towards people who, are, who have needs in life. But listen, the Jews missed that because they were looking for this miraculous Messiah, but they were looking for a miraculous Messiah that would use his power for something different. Like, understand this, that even Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, a religious leader, was able to look at the works of Jesus, the works of Jesus, and say, I know that you have come from God. Like, he caught it. The works were a witness of who Jesus really is. But most of the other Pharisees would have looked at those works and said, they're not works that come from God. They got to be from somebody else. Because when our Messiah comes, we're not looking for somebody who's going to do these works for simple acts of compassion and mercy. We're looking for somebody who's going to use those miraculous works to destroy the government of Rome and bring freedom to Israel from their oppressors. So they're completely missing the testimony of the works of Jesus. Point number three. The Father, not point number three. Sorry, number three of point number whatever we're on. The witness. I think it's point three of point three. And everything Jesus said and did, the Father testified of Jesus. That's what Jesus said. But specifically, he testified of the Son in his words. What were the Father's words? At that time, they were the scriptures. What were the scriptures at that time? They were the Old Testament. And he even reminded them, like throughout all of the Old Testament, you read them so that you think you can have life by living this certain righteous way of life. But what you're missing is that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. He's saying they all point to me. And you're missing that. Number four, the scriptures themselves, right? Kind of what I just said. In theory, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, we can't knock them. They were some of the greatest minds there were. They studied scripture from probably infancy on. They heard it. It was part of their life, their family. They went to school for it. They memorized it. They taught it. They studied, memorized, and thought upon it continually. But I love what theologian William Barclay had to say about the way they read it. And this should speak to some of us. They read it not to search for God, but to find arguments to support their own positions. Somebody hear that, because this wasn't just a religious issue in Jesus' day. They did not read God's word to find God. They read it to find arguments to support their own positions, what they already believed. They did not really love God. They loved their own ideas about God. That should really hammer us because all too often, even us in the 
educated, industrial nation of the United States of America, we get out our Bibles, and how often are we reading our Bibles simply to find God in his word and let him minister to us? Rather than read it as a duty to fulfill, to gain hopefully eternal life, if we can be good enough, or because I feel my heart is telling me. It, it, it's something that, that I think it should be this way because this is, this is how I feel that it should be. And so what I'll do is I want to live whatever that way is based upon my feelings or what my heart is telling me or whatever you want, whatever lie you want to believe about my heart, my gut, my feelings. As long as it feeds what you want to do, what it is that you really want to do, then you can go in God's word and you can probably find scripture that will support what it is that you want God's word to say. Time and time and time again, this is what lukewarm Christians do. Rather than understand, this is God's word. This is truth. It's not based upon what I think. It's not based upon what I feel. And it's definitely not based upon what I see. Jesus is addressing this in the Pharisees. And I think it's important that we understand that same struggle in life today because all too often, Christians use what their heart tells them or what they're feeling or they think is right to justify what they're doing in life rather than simply read God's word for what it is. John 1.22 says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Otherwise, you're what? Deceived. That means you may know what God's word says, but if you're not doing it, you might think that you're okay, but actually God's word says, no, you're deceived. You're lying. You're lying to yourself. Luke 6, 46, Jesus' words himself, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? But he who heard and did nothing, and he begins to tell this story, but just pay attention to this in verse 49. But he who heard, heard God's word and did nothing, meaning he didn't allow it to direct his life, did nothing, built a house. It was like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation. What's going to happen? His life's going to crumble. So the evidence of Christ's word dwelling in us is what? The evidence of Christ's word dwelling in us as we internalize it, we get it in us, is that it will guide the way we live our whole life. We hear it, we embrace it, and then we put it into practice. Finally, we get to this last section. Jesus turns the tables on his opponents, and he lets them know this, that the problem they have isn't really with the equality or authority of Jesus. The problem they have isn't with any of the witnesses to who Jesus is. The problem really lies with them, the religious, legalistic, self-righteous crowd. In verse 41, Jesus continues, and he says about their hearts, addressing their hearts, I do not receive honor from men. That's a big statement. 
But I know that you, I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and I do not, and you do not receive me. If another one comes in his own name, him you will receive. Most people believe that Jesus' words right there were projecting a future false messiah, antichrist, that will come upon the face of the earth in his own name, and that people will receive him because he glorifies himself. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not, see, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, meaning Moses' writings, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now listen, in this, I just want to pull out a couple things. Jesus makes it very clear that life is found in fulfilling the command of Jesus telling them, come to me. That's what he's saying, right? That they will not come to him. And the crowd isn't willing, even though they have all of the testimony that they need. They're not willing to come to Jesus and allow Jesus' ways to change their life to change what they do and the way they think because they're more concerned with man's honor, the way man will treat them, than they are with seeking the honor that comes only from God. That's a big pride issue. The fatal error of the Pharisees and the fatal error of most people in the world today that don't receive Jesus is a pride issue because they do not want to allow God's word God's ways, who he is to transform their lives. Charles Spurgeon, because I, I like a lot of what he writes, once preached about how fame, honor, and celebrity actually hinder true faith. Uh, and here's a few quotes from a, me from a message that he preached on this subject that I just want to close with reading. He writes, the mere fact of receiving honor. How many know that we all receive honor in one way or another, Right? The mere fact of receiving honor, even if that honor be rightly rendered, it's rightly given, may make faith in Christ a difficulty. Even if you deserve honor and it's rightly given, the potential that you've received honor in your life from somebody else may eventually make your faith in Christ a difficult thing. Because every, the more people pour praise on you, guess what happens? the more you think you deserve it. You believe that you're worthy of it. He goes on and says, when a man gets to feel that he ought to be honored, he's in extreme danger. Always receiving this undeserved honor, they deceive themselves into believing that they deserve it. Once more, the praise of men generally turns the receivers of it into great cowards. How does giving honor to somebody and they receive that honor continually turn them into a coward? Because the truth is, once they've received all this honor, they're not going to want to disappoint the men that gave it. It's much harder to follow the narrow way and disappoint people and upset them than it is to just keep receiving honor and pleasing people. But ho, oh, how many live on the breath of their fellow man to be approved, to be applauded. That is their heaven. But to be despised 
to be sneered at, to be called fool, to have some nickname applied to them. Oh, no, they would rather go to hell than bear that. Jesus wasn't calling the religious crowd even to a new faith or a different faith necessarily. He called them to believe what Moses, what the scriptures, what his works, what the Father, and what John the Baptist each testified about him. That he has equality and authority as the Son of God and God the Son. That's who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity. This is my last quote. A man who was merely a man and said the things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah who because of his equality and authority had the ability to reveal the character of God and yet still paid the penalty for our sins so that we might have relationship with him, being conformed to his image. And now listen, that's a goal that routine, stability, or righteousness can't meet. But that is the power of the good news, who Jesus is.